2: Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that you do every morning, uh, but probably don't think about very often. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to talk to you about your socks. Now, I have some assumptions about these socks of yours. Uh, I'm going to assume that they're uh, a couple years old, that they're boring. Maybe they're a little threadbare. Maybe you've got uh, one too many pairs with holes in the toes. It's time to up your sock game, and uh, you might find this surprising, but I have a recommendation for how you can do that. It's Bombus. The people at Bombus also had boring, old, holy socks, and they wanted something better, so they went out and made it. These socks that they've created are fantastic. Uh, They've got stay up technology, so they never fall down. They've got arch support. Uh, They're made from this kind of wonderful, long staple cotton that's warm in the winter, it's cool in the summer. So you're going to feel good. Your feet are going to feel good, uh, but you're also going to feel good yourself because for every pair of Bombas you buy, they're going to donate one to a person in need. Socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters. So you're going to feel good, you're going to do some good, and uh, you're going to do some good for us. If you go to bombas.com slash longform, that's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash longform, you'll get 20% off your first order and you'll be supporting the show, which is going to start right Hello! Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Evan Ratliff, uh, who's sitting uh, in a room with me. True. And then uh, sitting very far away in a different room is uh, Aaron Lammer.
0: I've told you guys not to call me.
2: <laughs> Lose this number. Lose this number. You mean your
0: landline number? This is a dedicated landline. <laughs> I don't want to hear any podcast calls, any incoming faxes, none of that stuff. Uh, Max, who did you talk
2: to this week? Uh, you guys, I talked to Liz Gilbert, Elizabeth Gilbert, yes. who uh, is probably known by many people for writing Eat, Pray, Love. You, might, you guys heard of that oh. book? It, uh, it sold um, one gajillion copies, but uh, also
0: a prolific magazine journalist.
2: That before. is exactly what I was about to say. Yes. She wrote uh, for a bunch of magazines before that book came out. Uh, particularly her stuff in GQ is like some of my favorite. Writing that ever appeared in the magazine, uh, and so we talked about that. we talked about her journalism and uh, the sort of end of her journalism and it was just great. I went to her house. The only issue the only downside of this interview was that um I think you guys I have something to I lost our mics. I lost the good mics
0: I, I'm glad that you're you're glad that you're acknowledging it because I've been getting a string of texts and they've gotten seemed less and less optimistic less uh, optimistic that we're going to find the mics.
2: Yeah, man, I'm pretty broken up about it, to be honest, but uh, we had these really, hey, look,
0: if you've got, the, if you're listening to the show and you have our mics, bring them back. Someone stole my fucking
2: mics and I had to go to Liz Gilbert's house with these shit ass mics <laughs> that we used to use and the sound is—it's uh, a little shit-ass. Mics of shame. Well,
0: I consider this like when when the baseball team wears the uh, the old-timey jerseys. It's a throwback episode. Yeah, but the these... throwback to when our sound was terrible.
2: Yes, yes. Except this is like—I'm um, not wearing those like beautiful 1920s, 1930s uniform. This is like poly- polyester 70s, a little, little tiny bill on it. Yeah, these can uh, these unis don't breathe. I'm sure it's not as bad as you say. Probably not. Nothing is ever as bad as I think it is. Uh, Aaron, what's as good
0: as you think it is? MailChimp. Straight up MailChimp. I'm going to tell you a real-life anecdote about my use of MailChimp. I was setting up a site uh, on Squarespace. That that one's free, Squarespace. (laughs) That one's on the house. Uh, And I was going to go to, like connect it with, like, a form to sign up for an email newsletter, and boom, MailChimp's just inside Squarespace, boom. ready to go. This is the kind of thing you get when you go with the leading email newsletter service in the industry. They are everywhere. They are plugged into everything. They are taking the hassle out of your email needs. Thank you, MailChimp.
2: Oh, man, we're never letting you back in the studio. We're only calling you for intros
0: from now on. <laughs> At this rate, I'll never make it back to New York, so uh, good to us. Here's Max with Elizabeth Gilbert.
2: Hi, Liz Gilbert. Hey, Max. How you doing? Thanks for um, having me over your house. Thanks for coming to my house. I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about your journalism journalism. Yeah. Um, But I'd like to start with, um, tell me about your childhood. You grew you grew up in on a farm on a Christmas tree farm yeah. in Litchfield, Connecticut, yeah. which is like a town I actually know yeah. and don't think of as a place where you would grow up on a, on a farm.
3: No, it's not. I mean, it used to be a farming community. When I was a kid, when we moved there in 1973, it was still to a greater degree a farming community than it is now. But of course that was already changing. Right. Um, but my dad had a job working as an engineer at a, Um, chemical plant in Naugatuck, Connecticut, but he had a dream of living off the land. So he found this farmhouse that had been on the market for, I think at that point, six or seven years that no one wanted for very, very good reason. Um, My sister always says that we were raised in a mid-19th century farmhouse with early 20th century comforts. (laughs) So he had like, we had running water sometimes, like the electricity sometimes worked. There was the was no heat um we might except for the wood stove and my dad just my mom to a certain extent as well but definitely it was my dad's big vision to try to raise the most self-sufficient family that he could um so goats chicken garden they made everything they sewed everything
2: why do you think your dad did it like i mm-hmm. feel like i know all kinds of people who have that fantasy yeah But none of them actually do it.
3: Yeah, right? Or they do it for a while. Uh And then um, it turns out that that's just a huge amount of work. Crazy pain Um, in the ass. And a tremendous amount of work. It is so much easier to buy your food than to grow it. (laughs) Um, There are high reasons and low reasons, right, that we do everything. And I would say that the high reason is a sense of wanting to make a thing, a a sort of creative impulse, um, a dream, which is of course the coolest reason to do something. The reason that doesn't even have to have a reason. (laughs) Otherwise, other than I'm not just here to pay bills and die. There's a vision that I have for my life. I want to make a life in my own image. I want to Test my the limits of my creativity and my resourcefulness.
2: It's amazing, yeah. and I totally understand the like uh, fantasy yeah. aspect of it. Yeah, the part that I'm interested in is like the doing, the doing. Right. <laughs> well, like, yeah. the fantasizing. Like I've got down. Right. I can. I right. am super awesome good at
3: dreaming. <laughs> amazing at imagining other lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Not. Uh, yeah. Not great at pulling the trigger.
3: I think he liked it more than he liked his real job. I know he was happier farming than he was. Working in the chemical plant, he had to keep working in the chemical plant because we didn't have enough money to just be farmers. The possibly debatable low-end part of the motivation yeah. is the single cheapest person I've ever met in my entire <laughs> life. You know, like there's there's That's this kind of comforting, which is which is a good motive to keep doing it because it's money saving. You know, mm-hmm. um, so chopping your own wood while it's labor intensive also, especially during the energy crisis of the 1970s, means that your oil bill goes from being you know however many thousands of dollars a year to zero it also means your children grow up with no heat in their bedrooms (laughs) in northwestern connecticut in the berkshires but that builds character i suppose right um so i think some of it was just honestly not wanting just not wanting to spend any money and a good way to do that is to be independent and resourceful and and a self-starter um it also means that there's no comfort yeah. Um, other than the comfort of knowing you did something with your own two hands, um, which is a kind of <laughs> a deep, 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 you know, my dad said he's never really happy unless he's cold and wet. You know, um, he's got that sort of, he's happier suffering than he is being in luxury anyway. So depending on how you want to see it, he either gave us the gift of that or inflicted it upon
2: us. <laughs> how do you see it?
3: I see it as a, as a, I see the whole story, but I see ultimately I can only see it as having been a gift because of the resourcefulness that it provided in me and what it made me go out in the world and do, you know, um, just the model more than anything my parents ever said. And I always, I stand by this idea that your, your kids will never listen to what you say, but they can't help imitating how you are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so my parents didn't have any huge giant particular interest in the arts. They didn't foster the idea that I should go be a writer what they modeled however was you can do whatever you want with your own life um and nobody has to understand it and nobody has to approve of it and as long as you're taking care of yourself and not taking anything from anybody else your life belongs to you so you know go have at it and and I truly can't see me ending up and I don't just mean here where I am lucky enough to have been very successful I mean in my twenties when I wasn't successful, but I could still do this interesting work because of that sort of stubborn self reliance.
2: Would it have been disappointing to them, do you think, if you hadn't pushed? Mm. Like if you'd gone and gotten like a comfortable career track job? Was that even like an option? Or would that have been like real black sheep stuff if you had uh That is such a good question.
3: I have never thought about that. Would we have been permitted to just get an accounting degree? <laughs> Um, You know, or to go to law school, even. That's interesting. My parents have very little respect for professionals um, and for degrees. So I think they probably would have been really disappointed if I had spent a lot of time getting a lot of credentials. (laughs) (laughs) I think they would have seen that as a definitely a waste of money and also a waste of time when you could just be out there doing the thing and learning how to do the thing by doing the thing Mm -hmm. um, rather than. You know, having somebody
2: give you a piece of paper that says you
3: know how to do the thing that you've never even done yet, right? So that that I think is a, a real family ethic.
2: Your sister is also a writer. Yeah, she writes like young adult yeah. novels, and it, I was interested in what about that, like growing up on a farm without TV or uh, heat? What about that led to writing? Do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, it does appear that it was inadvertently a petri dish for creating writers. My parents were big readers, so there was a lot of books were valued and books were around. Um, So that was your media source. Um, So it's probably not accidental that we were comfortable with language from an early age. But for me, I don't know where Catherine got it, because she's three years older than me. But for me, I can directly say that I'm a writer because of the way my older sister was. And what she was, was the Scheherazade who created storylines for us to live in because we had to make up our own stories to live in because we didn't have television. We didn't have neighbors our own age. You know, we really were kind of responsible for making up our own worlds to live in. And she had this limitless, still has, which is why she's such a great young adult novelist, this limitless, fabulistic imagination for creating these really intricate worlds that we entered into that was our virtual reality and lived in for sometimes weeks on end in the same story. And then we would write them into plays and then we would write them into little books. Um, My dad brought home a typewriter that was being thrown away at work one day and that was... The greatest thing we ever had, um, and the biggest fights we ever had over who got to use it.
2: Instead of the remote, it was the yeah, typewriter.
3: Yeah, the typewriter, an awful typewriter that jammed, you know, all the time, and it was it was a garbage typewriter. It but was we, literal trash. It was literally <laughs> like many things that were brought home from work, trash. Um, but it was cool trash, and we made great use of it. And my sister also pointed out to me once that reading was the only activity that we were allowed to be engaged in where you would not be interrupted and taken away and put to do a farm chore (laughs) if you were caught doing that, right? Um, So we must have somehow imbibed this idea that that's sanctuary, that's, that's... safety that's home base that's yeah or at least
2: a way of getting out of a, doing work
3: at least a way of getting out of milking the goats <laughs> <laughs> you know if you, uh, you would not be disturbed with a book in your hand um anything else was considered frivolous enough that it'd be like hey go you know go do this go do that." Um, do you think
2: that you would have like you would have followed your sister into anything
3: i tried to follow her into everything but she has more talents than i have she's a tremendous visual artist as well and I tried to follow her there but it didn't work. <laughs> She's a better athlete. She's a better student. So it wasn't for lack of trying. It's like this did seem to be the only pathway that was open to me. This you know? is just the one that um, stuck. Which actually helps when it comes time to deciding what you're gonna be. Yeah. It helps if there's only one thing you're good at. I do feel like <laughs> and I mean that literally, I mean I know a lot of multi talented people and I think and maybe this is just me turning my jealousy into um like a sunshiny version of it. But I do think it's hard on them sometimes to know where to put their energy Hmm. and and it's easier if you're not so great at a bunch of stuff
2: were you guys competitive
3: it wasn't worth my energy to try to be competitive because she was so objectively better at everything really and I, i mean that i mean she was older but she was also she's really gifted i was really more of a of a sidekick than i was a competitor um and and sometimes more of like a
2: you know, just happy to be in the game. Did that end at some point?
3: I still, I I don't don't think our childhood roles with our siblings ever end, you know? Um, I don't see anybody who's ever been able to not return to a sibling and become nine years old again. (laughs) Yeah.
2: You've had all this, like, tremendous success, and I wonder what that was like for your sister, like, when you're in the same profession as your only sibling, and what of them Yeah, has like Julia Roberts playing her in a movie. Like, uh, what's that like? I'm assuming it's
3: very weird. It's probably a lot of things. I know she's really proud of me and excited for me. It's probably also weird and disorienting. Look, it's weird and disorienting for me, and I'm (laughs) the one. You know, Um, so I can imagine that it's also weird and disorienting for everybody else. Um, I think the one thing is that although she was the writer first, then she went and took a different path in her young adulthood and got a PhD and became a professor and wrote academic stuff and did a bunch of other things. And in that meanwhile, I was only doing this. Um, So then she came back at it later after I was already established. So I feel like I wasn't really, I wasn't in her profession at the time. Right. That makes sense. It wasn't like
2: you guys were both like struggling trying to make it neck and neck. Yeah.
3: And I think, you know, her own narrative is that The books that she always loved were young adult books, and when she quote unquote grew out of those in teenage years, and I think this happens to a lot of really creative people, especially people with a more fantasy based imagination, the world basically told her that the books she liked weren't good. You know, um, that reading about dragons and hobbits is not interesting, and what you should be reading is Faulkner and. Hemingway and she starts reading Faulkner and Hemingway and she's like where's the dragons where's the magic where's the wizard there's nothing in here for me and so she just went full-on in the other direction and just became an academic and it wasn't until she had her own children and I think sort of came back into storybooks through her own children that she remembered that this is who she was um, Mm -hmm. and that there is actually this extraordinary art form of writing for those age groups and when she came back to that then she could find her voice as a writer but by that point I was already well in because I I just had never
2: stopped. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for a second to tell you a little bit about some sponsors uh, who are making today's show possible. First up is Audible. And if you're enjoying this interview, if you like the sound of Liz's voice, but you've never read any of her books, instead of going to the bookstore, why don't you try Audible and listen to Eat, Pray, Love or Big Magic Liz narrates them herself, and if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform, that's audiblepodcast.com slash longform, you can start a 30-day free trial right now and listen to those books for free. What a deal. Audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Audible has more than 180,000 audio programs, audio books, anything you could want. Many, many, many people who have been on the show have books on Audible. Uh, It's a fantastic way to experience a book, and if you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you like listening to things. So uh, go listen to more Liz Gilbert, audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Also sponsoring the show this week our friends at Squarespace. And uh, listen, it's time. It's time to build that site, whether it's a personal site, uh, something for your business. Stop procrastinating. Squarespace makes it so easy you do not have an excuse. Squarespace is the easiest way to build a website. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything's drag and drop. They got these beautiful templates. You can really build something in minutes. We built one for a podcast we did this fall called Brownscast. We put the website up maybe 10 minutes. It looked great. Everything worked perfectly. We didn't hit a single snag. If we had, we would have used Squarespace 24-7 customer support. It's really a well-oiled machine. If you need a website, or if you think you need a website, or if you've been thinking about a website that maybe you need, try Squarespace. So go start your free trial right now, today, at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks very much to Squarespace for their continued support of the show. Let's get back to that show. Let's talk about um, you finding your voice as a writer. Uh What I was really looking forward to talking to you about, Mm because I feel like you're so well-known for Eat, Pray, Love and all these books, but there are these great... GQ pieces that I'm not sure many people have read or mm-hmm. know or whatever. Tell me what happened next. So you graduated school, and then, and then how, how did you get from there to there?
3: Well, I made a commitment to devote myself to becoming a writer. And for five seconds, I considered going to graduate school. But it's really expensive. <laughs> and I also had... In addition to financial questions about the idea of going to graduate school for an arts degree, there was another part of me that really strongly was not sure that was the best place for me to be. I didn't want to be sitting in a room with 12 other young writers who were trying to find their voices while I was trying to find my voice. Mm -hmm. I just felt like that might actually be the worst place that I could possibly be. And I don't know whether that is true. I think for some people that setting works and is terribly important for their development and for the growth of their self-confidence and to create their tribe. For me, it just felt like, I don't think this is my path. I think I need to go roll around in the world I feel like I'm constantly being told to write what I know, but I don't know anything yet. I haven't been anywhere yet. I haven't done anything yet. Um, And I want to go places and do things and meet people and hear people who speak differently than me and who think differently from me. So I created really intentionally my own postgraduate MFA program, (laughs) which entailed working in diners and bars with notebooks in my back pocket, writing down everything that people said, saving money and then taking a month or two off to go traveling with that money to go find other people and get their stories. So this took me to a bunch of places, but one of the places I ended up was in Wyoming, working on a ranch as a trail cook. And I did that for two seasons, two years in a row, and was able to turn those incidents into a couple of short stories, one of which I sent to Esquire magazine. Of course, unsolicited because like, <laughs> like I didn't. I didn't know anyone in publishing. I didn't know anyone who had a job because <laughs> of the people I hung around with. But um, Esquire bought it from the slush pile, and and I got published.
2: How long was the gap between when you sent that in and when you heard?
3: Well, I'd been sending them stuff since I was eighteen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> really?
3: Yeah, I'd been sending my stuff out to magazines since my freshman year of college. Um, so the gap was seven years. <laughs> um, it's just that that was a story that they liked. Right. Um, I took a couple writing classes when I was an undergraduate at NYU and I had a really one really good professor who found out that I was doing this and said, you have to stop. This is a bad idea <laughs> because the inevitable rejections are going to break your spirit and you just need to focus on your craft now and worry about getting published later. And I... I don't know why I just knew, like, no, you have no idea how much I'm not giving up on this. <laughs> like, the inevitable rejections. I, I have three years of rejections in my dorm room already from, like, the New Yorker and the Atlantic and Harper's, like, yeah, I know. I, I, I'm not expecting this to work, but I also don't know how else you do this other than to try and to keep trying and to keep trying. So.
2: And you didn't know people in that world?
3: No. And so at Esquire, the guy who ended up finding my short story was this guy named Tony Freund, who had sent me a rejection letter a year earlier that had a little note at the bottom that said, I really like this story, but it's not for us. And I'd clung to that like, yeah. oh, here's my editor. Oh, I have an editor now. <laughs> I, have Look, a re- I have a really good
2: friend at Esquire. <laughs> yeah, I have a really good friend. I
3: really did feel like that. <laughs> Actually, my, my, I envisioned him as sort of a bearded, Hemingway-esque looking guy with a corner office and a turtleneck sweater and a pipe. Um, but he was actually like five months older than me. And he was an unpaid intern at the time. And then later become became, I think, a paid intern. And then now has been working magazines ever since and is a dear friend now.
2: Your professor was not wrong that most college kids <laughs> would get pretty discouraged by like <laughs> constant rejection letters. Where did you find the strength or confidence or whatever you needed to to not get discouraged.
3: It's vocation. It's the idea of vocation versus the idea of career, which is something that I'm always trying to distinguish for people that, look, I didn't like it. It's not like I was really super psyched every time I got another rejection letter, which was every week, you know, but I can't speak about this in any other way than from a sort of deeply spiritual standpoint that said, I am committed to this work because it unfolds and reveals within me aspects of myself that I can reach no other way. And therefore it feels like it's a divine gift. And therefore this is what we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives. Now, other people, and like, I feel like I'm, I still have this sort of attitude that other people can come along with me on this journey (laughs) if they want, if they don't want, that's not interrupting the journey, right? Like, It still doesn't interrupt the journey.
2: Do you get a lot of rejection letters now?
3: Well, I get a lot of criticism, which is the more grown up version of rejection (laughs) letters,
2: right? Like, rejection
3: letters have now escalated to like degrading reviews in major publications by respected critics, right? Like, that's the modern day equivalent of that for me. I mean, that's the ultimate rejection letter is like an above the fold degrading review in the New York Times (laughs) art section. Like, you can't get much. It's pretty bad, um, but there's who is it who said a lot of things in your life have to have gone very right for you to get a prominent, like scathing critical attack in a major newspaper. <laughs> you know, like you it means you've arrived at a certain level where people are even bothering to hate you.
2: When a scathing review comes out above the fold in the arts section in the New York Times, right. are you able to be like, well, I did do pretty well to get here, or is, is there like, is there at least a little bit of time where you're like? Well, that is soul crushing.
3: It's not soul crushing. It's ego crushing. And I have an ego and my ego is very harmed by those things and it doesn't like it and it hurts. And sometimes it's sad and sometimes it makes me angry and sometimes it makes me feel misrepresented and sometimes even worse, it makes me feel very appropriately misrepresented, like that they got some aspect of me that's like, wow, that really hurts because that's probably true, right? Um, You know, like sometimes... Criticism hurts because of how close it comes to the bone. Sometimes criticism hurts because of how far off the mark they are, but sometimes they're very on the mark, you know, Um, or the part of you who thinks that you're a fraud and horrible reads it and is like, oh, I've been exposed as my true self, a terrible, talentless fraud. So all of that happens, but that's not soul. That's ego. My soul is this other part of myself entirely that doesn't have anything to do with that and that looks at that whole scenario and says wow cool can we do it again <laughs> wow we just made a thing and it didn't work and what are we going to do now what are we going to do today what are we going to make now what are we, what are we going to unveil reveal like what are we going to attempt all i want to do is make things and attempt things and collaborate with people and try stuff and that's soul work right so it's very important i think to recognize The difference, and if you don't like the religious aspect of the word soul, you can find a different word that's non-denominational, you know, spirit, or there's some part of you that is not affected by that. And if you can find the work to do that comes from that place, that's your vocation. That's your calling. That's a sacred thing. That's a holy thing. You also have a career, and you have to pay attention to the real-life world of that. If I were to stop working because of rejection or criticism or attack, then I think my soul would be in grave, grave danger, that's the only danger, though, and that's that's on me.
2: That's not on them. You just gave me a lot to think about. Well, good. Because so that distinction between soul and ego is a difficult one, I think, for people to parse. Uh, that sometimes those things are are quite wrapped up mm-hmm. in each other. And it sounds like what you're telling me is not just once you were getting reviews and above the fold in the art section of the New York Times, but even when you were. Eighteen, nineteen, 19, sitting in a dorm room at NYU, there was something clear there for you?
3: I would have said the same thing then. And then is when it really mattered, right? Because then no one cared about what I was doing except me. So you better be doing soul work because there's certainly no ego reward in it. At that point, you're not getting anything out of it, you know? That's when it really matters the most. No one's waiting for your story. No one's knocking on your door saying we understand a very gifted young writer lives here. Not,
2: not even um, your best friend you know, Esquire.
3: Not even my best friend who has never heard of me. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that there's a way I've heard it said, which I think is nice, which is that your your ego is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master, right? Your ego has a tremendous amount of energy. So wrapped up in your ego is your drive, your passion, your taste, your aspirations your desire to leave a handprint on the world your your mojo right you need that stuff um because there's without it there's no energy there's no motive there's no you know there's no muscle but if you let that thing drive the whole story then you're setting yourself up for a life of terrible suffering because the definition of an ego is it's the part of you that can never be satisfied ever you know so if I'm only ego driven, then I look at the fact that E. Pray Love was on the bestseller list of the New York Times for three years, and all I see is that one day it wasn't anymore, <laughs> right? It wasn't anymore. Someone took my fucking spot, you know. Like, and then all I want is to make that happen again, which is never going to happen again because that book was just this outrageous freak wave, right? It was a black swan. It was a. It was. It doesn't make sense in in the trajectory of anything else I've done before or since, right? So if I need that, then I'm not gonna get that. And then I have a very sad life. And that's just a waste. <laughs> that's just not good enough. <laughs> that's not interesting enough. And that's not joyful enough. That's not that's not gonna do it, you know? Um, so I'd better have another reason to keep working, and that reason had better be the same one that it was when I was 19, which is, I love this more than I love anything else.
2: And you just knew that.
3: Yeah, I just knew that. I always knew that.
2: What was that moment like when Esquire ran that story? They There was some incredible deck on it. It was like... Oh, my God. In, it was like introducing the voice of a new American or something like yeah, that, something right? Yeah, uh, something... Was...
3: Vo- um, the debut of an American author. Yes. <laughs> which is like a pretty, amazing. pretty amazing thing to say when, when it's like in my... You know, what I had... Behind that, that they didn't know was I only had like six short stories behind, besides that. It wasn't like I had 10 novels waiting to be published. You know, like I didn't have a deep backlist. You know, that's kind of all I had.
2: So, how did that moment mean? Um, you, you like pick up that magazine, I assume oh. somewhere. You see that, you see your name. You've been trying for seven years to get a story placed. You've only got six. How does that <laughs> moment interact with that distinction between soul and ego? Like, It was awesome. (laughs) That was a lovely... Look, it's great.
3: It's great to have success. I mean, and it's squandering of life force to not enjoy those moments when they come. Right? And I think there's a terrible habit that people have to distrust those moments um, and to distrust the pleasure and the excitement around that as though that's a fraudulent moment. Like, nothing good can last Nothing gold can stay. The suspicion of joy that I think people have sometimes uh, that makes people not want to celebrate Mm -hmm. when things go well because they don't want to jinx their life in some way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great pity because I think there are very few times in your life where where you can unabashedly kind of pump your fist in the air and be like, what? (laughs) This just happened. And when that happens, you should take pleasure from it. It doesn't mean to expect that you get that every Wednesday now on the you know on the clock because who knows, but oh my God, have a party, <laughs> buy fifty copies of Esquire and give them to all your friends. For example, um, you know that might be a thing you could do. <laughs> a person could maybe do. You know, Um like just celebrate yeah. this great thing.
2: That <laughs> seems like uh, so healthy. How old are you when that's when that story was published? I was 24.
3: I was saving my um, mental illness for other parts of my life. Um, <laughs> you're, just, you're just storing it away. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I, was, I had plenty of other ag- um, other places where I expressed very unhealthy behaviors. But for some reason, and again, I think it's the protection of the concept of vocation. You know, I do even, even I have to say... Like I do think I've always had a pretty sane and healthy attitude around my work, sexual and romantic and love stories like that's where that's where the crazy comes out. but like it no, I was able to be sane and stable around that um thank God, you yeah know, um because
2: everything else was a
3: disaster
2: I mean also like if you hadn't if you hadn't been sane and healthy about it at twenty four and had you know yourself introduced as like the voice of a new generation, you I mean you could have been fucking intolerable
3: or that could just have broken me because it's too much pressure.
2: Yeah. You know?
3: Yeah. Um, that too. <laughs> like, oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And here's the thing, though. Like, it's not like I read that and I was like, yeah, that's, that, that tracks, you know? <laughs> Definitely. Right. Yeah, I'm the voice of a new generation. I mean, it's just seemed ridiculous to me. Delightful, but ridiculous. You know, I feel like what doesn't work in terms of motivation to do any kind of creative work is to try to pump yourself up by, purporting to be the greatest. I feel like that sort of affirmational thinking is flawed because your reasonable, rational mind knows that you probably aren't. (laughs) There's all kinds of evidence to support that you're actually probably not the greatest, but you're also not the worst. You're also not the worst. And there's a huge amount of real estate between the greatest and the worst. And there's a great, huge playing field that you can place yourself in there where you can comfortably be. And that's okay. So just Just be in there. Just be in that great, huge, vast space between the person who's the greatest, whoever that even is, and the person who's the worst, whoever that even is. You know, Um, I interviewed Tom Waits once, and he, which I never stopped talking about, mostly because every single thing he said was incredible. But one of the things he said was that in the arts, you often get intimidated from participating because you feel like you're an audience member for so much of your life looking at these amazing aerialists who are up on you know the the tightrope and the spotlight doing things that just seem impossibly beautiful and you can't do those things and he said but it's a big circus tent man <laughs> there's a lot of other jobs that you can do you don't have to be riding a unicycle on that tightrope in a tutu in the spotlight you can be the guy working with the elephants you can be in the freak show playing guitar with your feet, you can be... He's like, there's a bunch of stuff you can do and still be in the show. And and so I don't think I got super attached to that. It's like, I'm, I'm just in the show. I'm just happy to be in the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And I don't know how long I'm going to be in the show. And there was certainly a part of me that could imagine that that publication in Esquire would be my last. Um, that happens too.
2: The beginning and the end and the of the <laughs> voice of a generation.
3: How many people get heralded as something and then it doesn't pan out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again return home. What are you here to do? What is your work? Are you doing your work? Are you doing it with honor? Are you doing it with devotion? Are you doing it with humility and worship and love and joy? Then you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. Whatever happens, you're going to be good.
2: <laughs> at that point, what did you think of your work as? Like, w- w- How would you define what you were trying to do?
3: I was trying to be a serious American literary figure. So I was trying, at that point, I didn't even know if I could write a novel, but I was trying to be a short story writer. It never occurred to me to be a journalist. Um, It felt like two different things. I didn't take any journalism classes when I was at school. I did think you had to have some sort of certification to do that. But then after that short story was published in Esquire, it was brought to my attention that you know, you, you can also write other things.
2: <laughs> you actually need no um, credentials whatsoever. Yeah,
3: you, know, you. We. if people like the way you write, then you can do other stuff also. And that was really exciting to me because it was brought to my attention that you can earn a living doing that. And that just seemed amazing because up until that point, I thought the only way you could earn a living was bartending and being a waitress. So then I was able to start pitching story ideas. Um, and again, I mean, again, it all comes back to those years that I spent doing my self-created postgraduate traveling around learning how to be a writer thing because the story ideas that I had were story ideas that came from experiences that I had had so when I was out in Wyoming and I met these cowboys and some of them had been in the rodeo and they had talked about the groupies of the professional rodeo circuit who are called buckle bunnies and that's a thing <laughs> these women follow the rodeo from town to town and sleep with cowboys but also are the sort of invisible economy that supports the whole rodeo because they let the cowboys come back to their houses and take showers and they give them food in the morning and they take care of them when they're injured and it's this weird underground railroad of women both using men for a strange trophy um, to get a top rodeo cowboy is sort of a, a a get in that world, but also supporting them and mothering them along the way. It's this really interesting culture. So that was the first story that I ever pitched, which I never would have known about had I not taken myself out to Wyoming to work on a ranch to meet people who are not like me. Um, and Spin Magazine sent me to Texas. Um, and that was terrifying because I didn't know how to write.
2: But you'd been traveling the country with a notebook asking people for their story. So you had right. some... Some fingertips were how to do that.
3: I didn't know that I knew how to do it. (laughs) And I also had never had anybody pay my way. Mm -hmm. So it felt like the stakes were really high because they bought me a plane ticket and they rented me a car and they got me a room at the Days Inn in Houston. And they said, you're going to be there for 10 days and then you have to give us 2,500 words about Buckle Bunnies. And I... That was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I remember being in tears in that days in. I remember just feeling... Before
2: or after reporting? Um, before. <laughs>
3: <laughs> during. And while I was trying to write it, too, because it did feel... It's a big difference for me. It felt like between sending a magazine something I had already written and having it rejected and having somebody believe in me with me not knowing right if I could like it. Right now
2: it's like the place to bet.
3: Yeah. Um, and, and that was that was really... That was scary. And I didn't know how to interview people. I mean... It took me a while to realize that all you do is ask them questions, which is all I'd ever been doing anyway. But I remember sitting in that, you know, in a parking lot in the middle of Texas in the middle of the night outside of a cowboy bar after a rodeo. And it took me like an hour to get up the courage to go in there and begin because essentially what I was needing to do was to talk to strangers about their sex lives in Texas, <laughs> you know, and it just seemed dangerous and, um, and weird and hard. And how do you even, how do you even start?
2: How would you even start?
3: You walk up to the friendliest looking person. And I did something that I've never stopped doing, that I never stopped doing as a journalist, which was to be very candid. And these are the two things that I found really helped to just say, look, I, I've been sent here to write this story there's something about the word my boss wants me to do this that makes people want to help you. (laughs) You know, I just said my bosses, and they weren't even really my bosses, I wasn't on staff or anything, but they want me to do this and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know anything about this world. I've never been here to this part of the world before. This is the first rodeo I've ever seen. Is there such a thing as buckle bunnies? What does that even mean? You know, and, and also saying, this helps a lot, saying to people, I don't want this story to be stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so what do I need to know, and who do I need to talk to, so that this story isn't stupid? And that really is an amazing thing to say to somebody because then they're like, "Yeah, okay, here's who you need to talk to." Right?
2: Then they've got they've got some vested interest, in yeah. not making it look stupid,
3: and just saying, "I'm not from here. I don't know how you. What are your ways? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a stranger around I mean,
2: these parts." <laughs> like you know, you've written a lot about. There's this long section in. in Eat, Pray, Love about how confident and comfortable you are making friends and how you know you can make friends with anyone and you had done all this traveling and stuff. Like, Were you more formal than that when you walked into that bar or were you like Liz just like you had been Liz other places except now the notebook was not like stashed under the bar. It was like in your hand.
3: I think I was more formal at first until I realized that, oh, this is the same thing. mm mm-hmm. Except for, of course it isn't, right? Because making friends with somebody, you don't usually have an ulterior motive of trying to find out information about them or their
2: friends that they, that they may they, or may not want to reveal with you, right? Like That you're then going to publish in a yeah. large national magazine.
3: Yeah, and I think my years at SPIN were especially educational in terms of shaping my ethic because the first year at SPIN... I did a thing that I'm still ashamed of, which is I found it really good comedy. I found a really good way to make funny stories, which is to make fun of people. And so I would go and talk to these people, and they would say stupid things, and I would write them down, and then I would make fun of them. (laughs) And it's shooting fish in a barrel, and it's mean, and it's not good journalism. Um, It's cheap in a way, but I think I was so insecure about wanting to be part of the team and wanting to be, you know, wanting to get more magazine jobs and wanting to write a really dynamic story that I felt like that was the best way to do it.
2: Or maybe like the easiest way not to fuck up.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's certainly electric to throw really stupid, degrading quotes that people say. Um, and to make making fun of people is is easy. <laughs> and it didn't taste right. And it didn't feel right. And... Later, it evolved into a different way of writing about them, which was to find the thing about that person that was worth celebrating and that was beautiful and cool and really interesting rather than the stupidest thing about them. Did Um, it
2: change the kind of things that you were writing about? Because, like, at GQ, you wrote a story about this guy who had been living in the woods in North Carolina since he was 17. You wrote about Hank Williams Jr. You wrote about your time at Coyote Ugly. Yeah. But they were all... With these people and worlds that you seem to have complete respect for. So right. was was part of it also moving into places where you didn't want to make fun of people as much, yeah. or like it wasn't. <laughs> well,
3: it, it changed what I was pitching, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and you compare those stories, which I'm very proud of, to a couple of the stories I wrote at Spin about, for instance, MTV Spring Break, Lake Havasu, Arizona. Just go out and just shred these kids or renaissance fairs
2: you were like on the making fun of beat
3: i was on the making fun of beat but it was my own beat you know Mm -hmm. these were my own suggestions like hey you know what's funny people who care about renaissance fairs (laughs) (laughs) um you know and and you know that was the one where i felt a shift and at the end there's a little bit of redemption but i was like you're just a dick liz you're just a dick these people love this and they're committed to this because they love it and it's joyful for them.
2: Nobody asked you to come here.
3: Nobody asked you to come here. And this is like, you're just
2: like, there's really no other word. <laughs> you were basically on the dick beat. Yeah, you're just on the dick
3: right? So, and, and there were other stories like that as well, um, about like the opening of the Hard Rock Casino in Las Vegas. It's easy to make fun of mm-hmm. commercial Las Vegas. There's so many things that it's easy to make fun of. And... I just felt like it was lame.
2: How did you realize that? It was like, there was, was it? I was it...
3: embarrassed because I felt like a bully. Oh, here's a good in- test of integrity. I felt like I would never, ever want to see those people again that I wrote mm-hmm. about because I would be so ashamed of the fact that I had befriended them and then made them look dumb.
2: Right. Like, I'm still ashamed of that. How old are you when like, when that 28, started 29. I and... feel like that's also an age that people like just generally start to get embarrassed. Of you like what should. The, yeah that's also like the age <laughs> just a like a
3: lot of things to be embarrassed <laughs> about in my life at that point um that was only one of them but but it was it was all in keeping with a certain i think you know i've heard that that you know i don't want to let myself off the hook here cuz i think there are people who get their ethics earlier than that but i think that it takes a long time to grow up <laughs> and it takes a long time to realize what consequences are. I think what a lot of your young adulthood is, is finding out what the boundaries are. And for me, unfortunately, for better or for worse, and there are episodes in my life where this has absolutely served me, and there's episodes in my life where this has made me into a disruption engine. But, you know, the only way I can figure out where a boundary is, is by crossing it by about 10 miles, you know, and at full speed, and then looking back and being like, oh, (laughs) I guess the boundary... Is back there on the other side of those bodies littering the road of people that I ran over. You know, just it took it took me a long time to just and the only way to have that the only way I learned that was by going too far in a lot of things, and sadly or you know whatever that's how it is. But that that impulse to also go too far is what pushed me to do very interesting things. Also, um, so it's all part of the same makeup. I just don't want to walk around feeling like i'm a dick <laughs> i just don't want to be that person i don't want to be that person
2: it's a pretty good goal don't don't be a dick it's like a pretty pretty decent I life philosophy the platinum <laughs>
3: rule the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you but the platinum rule even higher don't be a dick just don't be a dick <laughs> just don't be and that doesn't mean that you can't be a good journalist mm-hmm. um, although i don't think that i was made to be a journalist in that i you know i think sometimes To be a very good journalist, you sort of kind of do have to be a bit of a dick. Or you have to be a skeptic, which I'm not. Uh, I think I'm too trusting to be a proper news journalist, but I think I was good at writing profiles Mm -hmm. because I'm interested in people and I care about them a lot more now than I did when I was 27. (laughs)
2: Um, But you also wrote about people that on some level you loved.
3: Yes, that became the motive. I would no longer write about somebody unless I could celebrate that person.
2: Did you know going into those stories why you loved them or why you could celebrate them? Or was the point of reporting those stories to figure out why you were so kind of like attracted to them?
3: Sometimes both. And sometimes you go into it thinking that they're wonderful for this reason. And then you find out that actually they're sort of not so great in that realm. But underneath the not so great part lies some deeper, more interesting impulse in that person that is fascinating and is what it's all about. So it might not be about what you thought it was about.
2: How do you approach reporting a story like that when you are there in some way to celebrate the person? It's a thing I think that uh, is happening a lot more in magazines right now than it has in a long time, because the internet gets really excited about profiles of people that the internet loves. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot more of those kinds of pieces mm-hmm. right now than I think there's ever been. And some of them are able to get to a place that's revealing and has depth and uh, finds that thing that you're talking about. And some of them are just like big hugs to the person you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and don't do a ton. Yeah. And and so I'm interested in how you approach, I mean, these were not famous people for the most part that you were writing about, but how you approach reporting and getting to know someone who you already love on some level?
3: Well, I think part of it is what you just said, that they aren't famous people that I was writing about. The most famous person I've ever written about was Tom Waits. So he's not Brad Pitt or George Clooney, right? I'm not doing a Vanity Fair cover story where I'm working with somebody's publicist and... There are rules about what you're allowed to ask and what you're not allowed to ask. I'm writing about somebody that most people have never heard of. And you
2: never even had like any interest in doing that? Did people try and get you to do that I sort of stuff? I never had any
3: interest in doing that because I didn't think I could do my job with those people. Because I think those people, for good reason, are way too defended. And I don't think you can write a true story. And I think what's one of the things I find frustrating as a reader of journalism is the way magazines keep trying to reinvent the celebrity profile because they keep trying to do a workaround around that particular problem, which is that this is somebody who both wants and does not want to be revealed. Or this is somebody who's been very badly burned and has now gone to media school, um, whether informally or literally, to learn how to not show who they really are. And you've only been given forty five minutes with them. And so good journalists who get those jobs end up writing about the meta situation of how weird it is to be with somebody who you only have 40, you know, which is not a very interesting story. (laughs)
2: It's pretty uh, pretty like well-trod earth. Yeah, it's
3: nobody's fault that it's an impossible job, but I feel like it's an impossible job. So when people would ask me to do those stories, the only way I could get out of that assignment was to come and say, oh, that's great. Thank you for the offer. But you know what? How about I write about this person and then bring, try to bring something, really interesting to sort of misdirect the editor's attention from wanting to send me to do a story that I don't think I would have been able to do properly because I don't think it can be done properly. Like Frankie Manning, he was a swing dancer. So back when swing dance became really big in the 90s, he had been a great swing dancer back in the 40s. He was this African-American man who was a Harlem star, who was in some films, had this really glamorous kind of cotton club life. One of the great social dancers that ever existed and then went to world war ii served in devastating conditions hand-to-hand combat in the south pacific which i always think of as a sort of macabre sort of dance you know like for somebody who's so attuned to his partner's movements i always thought like oh god he must have been terribly good at that at the same time as that being awful right because he was so such a brilliant physical presence um and then came back to Harlem and got a job at the post office and worked there until he got a phone call one day from a girl and a boy in their 20s at a payphone who had found an article about him in Life Magazine from 1943 and were trying to figure out if he was, they were trying to find some people who were still alive from that era and they called him and said, are you Frankie Manning, the great dancer? And um, at that point he was in his 80s, late 80s and he said, no, baby, I just work at the post office. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, can we meet you? And he got this renaissance where he became the great teacher of all these swing dancers. It's just beautiful, beautiful story, but really hard to find him in there because he came from a generation where you don't talk about difficult things. Mm-hmm. And he came from, you know, he was a black man who was very careful um, about not getting involved in conversations about race so it was really hard to get him to open up about what it was like traveling with his dance troupe through the Jim Crow South um, because he doesn't want to revisit dark things. He
2: Did didn't. you get him to open up?
3: I found it way a little bit, which, and this is a really good tactic too, which is to ask him, I asked him who his best friend was and if we could all have lunch together. That's always a really good thing to do because the friend knows things about this person that you wouldn't think to ask so the friend can say Frankie tell her about when this happened tell her about that thing that happened in Mississippi tell her about and with the friend there he felt more comfortable Mm -hmm. you know revealing this stuff and by that point in my journalistic career I did not feel ethically confused about doing that because I knew that I wasn't going to do any harm to this person. You
2: weren't going to be a dick.
3: I wasn't going to be a dick. It's safe. Like, at that point, I felt like it's safe for you to talk to me um, because all I'm trying to do is show people what a fascinating person you are. And that doesn't mean a perfect person, <laughs> you know? Um, and there's ways to there's ways to do that. There's ways to bring forth somebody's imperfections or or even their shadows without letting go of... The miraculousness of that person.
2: So part of that approach, part of, part of how you looked at those stories was about your own sort of like confidence and clarity in your motivations. It was like, if you were going in really just wanting to reveal that person and, and their story, all you had to do was just ask them questions because it couldn't go badly.
3: And it's okay. There's a great sense of relief that comes from sitting across from someone and knowing that they're safe with you. Um, It's almost as good as the relief of sitting across from somebody and knowing that you're safe with them. (laughs) And and I think it's become more and more over the years my goal to be that person in all settings. I'm not going to hurt you. It's funny because I think sometimes we spend so much time worried about protecting ourselves that we forget that we also can cause harm. (laughs) Um, But journalism makes you have to know that Mm -hmm. because somebody's exposing themselves to you and you can do great harm to them.
2: I'm interested in how you think about doing harm to the people in your life that you write about when you're writing about yourself.
3: Oh, that, yeah. Well... I don't mind. My friend Brene Brown always says, "I don't mind showing my own ass, but I don't want to show anybody else's." (laughs) You know, and and listen, this is a tricky, tricky, tricky thing for a lot of people when it comes to work that they want to do that's based on their own lives. And there is no easy and simple solution to this. There's all kinds of ways to look at it. There's the way that says, and I've never personally done this, but there's the way that I've seen other people do it, and sometimes they make great and important work out of it is to say my life belongs to me this happened to me and I have the right to tell the story and I have the right to bring in whoever needs to be brought in for this story to be told and if that's my family um, or my ex or uh, you know friends who too bad you were in the way <laughs> <laughs> you were in the way of my story or you're a key figure of my story and sometimes people do that in ways that I think are very brave and sometimes they Sometimes they do that at great personal cost, Um, and there's another way, which is not to do that to other people, but I would never say that you can't, because that's taking away other people's freedom of expression.
2: Well, how do you figure it out for yourself? Do you talk to people about what you want to put in a book?
3: Yeah, and I was about to say I've never put anybody in a book without letting them see it beforehand, but there is one big Exception to that, which is that when I was writing Eat, Pray, Love, I I didn't go to my ex-husband, somebody who I've never spoken to or had any contact with since our divorce. Really? Um. So there wasn't even like a really an open door to go to him through. You
2: never got like an email from him that was like, "Congrats no. on the book." No,
3: <laughs> no. Um. Nor did I go to him and say, "I'm doing this, and I want you to read this to approve of it," because I I didn't want to risk that for myself and we didn't have that kind of relationship. I mean, we had a really, really bad divorce. So that wasn't a conversation that was possible for me to have at that time. And so that being the case and wanting to be as ethical a person as I can be and not wanting to roll him under the bus and not wanting there's a level to it which I thought, it's not fair that I have a soapbox and he doesn't, right? I'm a writer, he isn't. I am well aware that there are two sides to this story. Um, I don't have enough arrogance to say that my side is correct. And so I'm going to tell as little of this story as I can, you know, that, so that's what I did with Eat, Pray, Love. I mean, in a weird way, while it is a divorce memoir, there's a very little in there Mm -hmm. about my ex-husband. You don't know his name. You don't know his profession. You don't know what specifically we were fighting about. You don't know his flaws. You don't know his
2: his attributes. Did you write that stuff and take it out or did you never write I it? I wrote
3: it in my diaries for years as I was working through, you know, and I also have this sense that nobody should listen to that stuff unless I'm paying them by the hour. <laughs> and I had people I was paying by the hour to listen to me talk my way through, you know, that, but I didn't I didn't want to make that book into an airing of grievances. I don't like to read that. Generally speaking, I don't think there's a lot to be found about yourself by airing your grievances against somebody else. So I went through that book again and again and again and just pared it down and pared it down until, I mean, look, I had to say I was married and getting a divorce. The whole thing is about that, you know, but but as little as I could say felt like the only fair thing to do. And everybody else in that book, including David, who was this guy I was in love with after my marriage, did see it, you know, and and did approve it. And And I asked people, do you want me to change your name? Do you want me to take these details out how do you are you comfortable with this do people
2: ever come to you and say this is great but this part where i said this thing to you can you please take that out because yeah. that, that violates the platinum rule yeah <laughs> <laughs> or
3: there's also times where i mean this is the crazy thing about perception there are also times where people have come to me and say you you have me saying this thing that i never said mm-hmm. and i swear i heard them say it but either they don't remember saying it or they didn't say it and i'm certainly not going to get a fight about that, be like, oh, yes, you did. We were at, you know, this bar on 14th Street. And you said, no, I mean, of course, Um, it's not important enough, right? I don't think I've ever personally had a story to tell that felt so important that I needed to do that to somebody else. Um, That wasn't what that book was about, right? That book was about me working through my shit, me going on my journey, me taking accountability for my failures, right? That's what was really the focus. So yeah, I can take out stuff. That's all right. It's tricky. And when I say that, I just, I don't want to discourage anybody from taking a different path because some of the most important and interesting memoirs that we've we've had are people exposing family members. <laughs> and so, you know, and then they got to work that out. They got to mm-hmm. work that out at their own Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have the stomach for it. You know, I don't have the stomach for it.
2: You've never talked to your husband since you Mm -mm. got divorced? Do you ever wonder what the fuck he must think about all this?
3: Sure. Not enough to pick up the phone and give him a call. (laughs) Um, No, it's, you know, it just has felt safer and better to just let that line
2: stand. I feel like you must have gotten this question like a, a million times, but you're doing really well as a magazine writer, you know making good money, you're writing for best magazines around, but then this crazy thing happens, and you sell like one gajillion books. What was it like?
0: (laughs) Like, what is it like to have the the crazy thing
2: happen? Like, there are people who are listening to this right now who are writing magazine articles, who have a book idea, who are hoping to write magazine articles and then have a book idea, and You did the thing, and then the craziest possible outcome happened.
3: Yeah. It felt like a lot of things. (laughs) I mean, okay, first of all, and it's taken me years to figure this out, why it wasn't more disorienting and why it didn't feel more insane. And the only answers I can come up with are, there's something even about the word crazy, because that's a word that's often used because it was just galactically weird, like the, the, the hugeness of that book. But when people would say to me, your life must be so crazy right now while that was happening, all I could think was, no, my life was crazy before this. <laughs> like my life was crazy before you ever heard of me. I made, I made my own insanity in my twenties and that was crazy. I'm actually good now. Um, because I, Sorted myself out, and I've gotten my feet, and I'm making better choices about my life, and things are actually good now. This thing that's happening itself is crazy, but I'm not. I'm I'm on the other side. I'm on the crazy resilient side of this story. <laughs> you know, I'm on the other side of the craziness, so. Well, it felt like there was this tornado going around me. I was no longer the tornado. And I had always, up until that point, been the tornado. So my life, it was almost a reversal, my life at 35 from my life at 25, where people might have looked at me and said, that all looks pretty sane and stable, but actually what was going on was a tempest. Whereas by 35, it looked like a tempest, but I was the calm at the center of that storm, right? So I think... A great deal of the benefit is that it wasn't my first book, it was my fourth. That it was didn't happen when I was insane (laughs) in my twenties. It happened when I was pretty stable. What do you think would have
2: happened if it had happened when you Uh, were?
3: You know, I would have been getting out of limousines with no underwear. I would have been (laughs) like a total train wreck. It would have just been. Oh, it would have been not not good. It would have not been a good time in my life for people to have been paying close attention to my behavior. Um, I'm very grateful that I got to go through my twenties without anybody paying close attention to my behavior. Now they can because it's like I'm good. It's cool. Like (laughs) back then, (laughs) it would have been. Bad. <laughs> very, very bad. And I'm also grateful that my first books didn't do very well. Look, honestly, I think my first book, my collection of short stories, I think it sold around four thousand copies. You know? Um and I was psyched. I was mm-hmm. like, four thousand people wanted to read this? That's amazing.
2: Last American Man was like a National Book Award finalist.
3: Yeah, it was a National Book Award finalist. It did very well critically, but it was not um I still haven't earned back the the advance on that book, believe it or not. And it wasn't that huge in advance. So I had behind me the experience of what it feels like to write something that is not explosively successful, which meant that when it came time to write the next book, I already knew that it's okay to write a book that's not explosively successful. So there was nothing in me that said I have to do this again, which is good because that would have not been possible. But the other thing is that I took a really big risk and it doesn't feel like it. Now, because all I—even for me, it's hard for me to remember what a risky move that was, the decision that I made going into the journey that I took and going into that book. So what I did was I quit a really good job. I quit one of the best jobs in journalism. What was the job? um, Being a a contract—on-staff contract writer at GQ for a really good salary, having full creative control over the profiles that I got to write— at a time when you could still write really long-form magazine stories, um, having to write only five pieces a year, getting to be in charge of what those were, working with really amazing people.
2: You didn't think that that job was still sitting there on the other side?
3: No, because I know how unpredictable the magazine world is. And I had been in there long enough to know that all it takes is for one editor to get fired, which happens every six minutes in the magazine world, and you don't have your in at that magazine anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, um, And... No, I don't t- I didn't take any of that for granted. So I quit that job, which is which felt a little crazy
2: at the time. and what I was lo- that conversation like?
3: I just went and explained to Jim Nelson, who's still the editor in chief of GQ, that um what I was doing. And what I was doing was going on a spiritual journey to write about a woman's emotional story when I had developed my voice and my reputation on writing about men. And not about spiritual journeys and not about women's emotional lives at all. In fact, I was sort of defined as the woman who wrote about guys in a very sympathetic to men way. So this book, this thing that I was doing was, was taking me very far away from whatever reputation I
2: had. Did that reputation feel earned? Like, was it natural or was that just where you had found an opening? I mean, it sounds like, you know, after reading Eat, Pray, Love and after sitting here with you for an hour, like... Uh, it's not like uh, the emotional lives of women were totally like foreign territory to you. They kind of were
3: in my 20s, actually. No, I was more much more interested in men than I was in women, in men's lives than I was in women's lives. And I think some of that was just me wanting to be a guy, like just wanting to have the freedom and the power of a man in the world and not wanting to be vulnerable or fragile in any way. And so that's what drew me to work in the bars where I worked That's what drew me to work on a ranch. That's what drew me to write about the rodeo circuit.
2: Did you ever get criticism from other women for that?
3: Not to my face. (laughs) Um, No, not to my face. Although they they would have had there could have been cause to criticize that. I think I was very afraid of women's lives in a way because I didn't. I was afraid of. I didn't want to be a mother. And I, I, I mean, I just grew up like many of us in worlds where men had better lives. Always. The men in my family had more. They they had more privilege and more entitlement and more freedom and more power. And I don't think that's very unusual in a lot of families. And so from a very early age, I was like, I want to be like those guys. I don't want to be the women who spend their lives cleaning up after these men you know, because that's what I saw in my family was men who did whatever they wanted and women who cleaned up after them. Those were the two two jobs. I was (laughs) like, one of those jobs really sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to go align myself with those guys because that's a better way to be. It felt very risky for me to almost come out of the closet as a woman. I'd really been invested in being one of the guys and writing about men and being comfortable in men's worlds. And then just I cracked and fell apart and my marriage fell apart and my emotional life fell apart and I had the spiritual hungers that I'd never given voice to before. And, and so while it seems now like the most bankable thing in the world to have written E, Pray, Love, because of course it turned out to be, the feeling I had while I was doing it was I just threw away everything I've built And the few people who follow me and like me and like what I write are going to hate this so much because this is exactly the opposite kind of voice from what they know me to be, and I have to do it anyway. And it may just be for me that I have to do this, and I remember vividly feeling while I was writing Eat, Pray, Love this kind of apologetic sense to the readers that I already had saying, Look, guys, I'm really sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know you're going to hate this. I just have to do this thing. And then once I'm done doing this thing, I'll come back to being that chick. Was that the plan? That was the plan, but I never came back to being that chick because I wasn't anymore that chick. And it's not like those doors are closed to me, but I just went and did other... I went in a different direction. My voice wouldn't make any sense in Esquire and G- GQ right now, even though I love my friends there, and they sometimes ask me to write for them. I'm like, but it, do- it-, it won't work anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't want... To read about what I want to talk about, right? Um, so it's better that I stay at O magazine, where I'm actually much more aligned right now, but I love you guys, and thank you, and thank you for the invite but but it's not it's not going to work.
2: I understand that it, w- it wouldn't work because you're not that person anymore, although it would be kind of interesting it'd be interesting to see what would happen if you had to go yeah uh, write a story about a dude
3: yeah. Well, I would. I know the kind of dudes that I would be interested in, right? Um, and and but it was. It's Are the they same. different than the
2: ones you were interested no, in? No, no,
3: they're the same. You know, um, it's just it, you know I, I haven't written a profile since my last story that I wrote in GQ before I went traveling for Eat, Pray, Love, and I very much expected to come back and certainly crawl on my knees and beg for that job
2: back. Do you miss it at all?
3: No. Isn't that funny? I loved it. I loved it, and I don't miss it. It was a lot of work to write those profiles and that's work taken away from time that I now devote to writing books. So I have a lot more time that I can focus on, you know, like the novel, The Signature of All Things that I wrote took four years of research. It would be it would have been a big interruption to have had to go off and write five profiles during that same period of time. People do it and I think they're incredible. I'm just very fortunate that I that I don't have to. I'm grateful for the, the expanse of
2: time. How do you decide what to write now? Like, how do you decide what projects to tackle? You did that novel. Uh, You just did a book in the fall about creativity. Like, how how are you making those choices?
3: The one that's the most exciting to you has to be the one. Um, There is no other way to decide. It has to be that. And it can't be calculated much past that because any other calculation is going to put you into working on a project that you're not very interested in. And then it's going to be really hard to motivate yourself to do it. It's hard enough when you're excited about it, (laughs) when you're doing it because there's some calculus that says, oh, it's so funny, I just watched a a guy who I think of as somebody who I'm sort of mentoring do this. He made this calculus where he just he's a very, very gifted writer, and he said, basically, I want to make some quick money, so I'm going to write an erotic novel, because those are selling really well right now. It didn't work because there was nothing in him that wanted to write an erotic novel. There was nothing in him that was fascinated with the process of writing an erotic novel. He was strictly trying to cash in, and he thought, well, this will be easy. I've seen people do this, too, where they're like, oh, I'll write a young adult book. That'll be easy. It's not. And the people who are really good at it are doing it with this, like, fire of passion for wanting to do it, you know? if you're, It's not going to—very unlikely to work— so that the calculus has to be, what's the thing that makes me want to get up in the morning? What's the thing that makes me get up and say, I'm so psyched that I get to do this?
2: Is that work for you at all to figure out what that is?
3: It's about being very awake um, and being very alert. So the work is sort of clearing your life of distractions enough that you can actually are capable of feeling that excitement when it arrives, that you haven't overbooked yourself in 10 different directions so that you are so exhausted that you can't even you wouldn't know inspiration if it punched you in the face right like you can't do that to yourself it's about being sober it's about being hopeful it's about a certain faith there's like it's a way of being (laughs) which is about being ready and it's about trusting your own curiosity enough to follow it even if it doesn't make sense even if the, the inspiration that you had doesn't Align with anything you've ever done before, even if it doesn't seem like it will be marketable, even if it's, even if it's something you can't even believe you're interested in. But you're sort of you have to have full faith that if you're curious about something, it's for a reason. That it's a clue on the great scavenger hunt, and that you follow that clue, and then the next, and the next, and next. The tricky bit is that you have to start from a place of this is what I'm most excited about, this is what I'm most curious about, and then you have to recognize and know what will happen, which is that six months into it, it's going to feel very boring and tedious because making things is often boring and tedious. And another idea is going to come along very seductively and do the dance of the seven veils in the corner of your studio and say, I'm a much more interesting, much more exciting idea. Why don't you abandon this project that you've been working on for six months and come and run away with me to paradise? And you have to be smart enough to know not to do that because six months from now, that project will also be dull and boring and another idea will come and seduce you. And you have to be able to stay with it through the boring part to get to the end. And so when those other seductive new ideas come along, you have to tell them to take a number (laughs) that we're doing this now. And until this thing is finished, I'm not going to run away with you. First, it's the excitement and then it's the discipline.
2: It sounds a lot like relationships. (laughs) It kind of is actually.
3: And you know, I have this theory that Everything that's interesting is mostly boring. So life is filled with all these really interesting things, and we chase the, the the high and the buzz of the excitement of that thing. But 90% of that thing is boring. So travel, amazing, most fascinating thing you can do with your time, mostly 90% boring. of it, mostly boring. Anybody who's ever traveled knows huge part of it is not, you'd sort of rather be home <laughs> or you're in another airport or you're alone in a city for the fifth night and there's nothing to do and you don't know anybody and you're sort of wondering why you bothered to come here and it's expensive. Like it's, And then there's that one transcendent thing that will happen on that trip that could only have happened if you had gone through the trouble to drag yourself to Yugoslavia, right? There's a reason you came, this is the reason you came, it's totally worth it, it's worth everything, right? Marriage, the most interesting thing you can possibly do, align your life with the life of another person, often very boring. <laughs> right? But then there's the thing that you're making that only two of you can make and the great reward where you're like, this is why we're together because we're doing this thing in the world together. And it's so incredible. And then it's okay. It makes up for the parts of it that aren't that amazing. All the arts are fascinating and extraordinary and fabulous and 90% boring. And I think the trouble people get into is that they go into creative careers because they want to have an interesting life and then they're amazed to find out how much tedium and boredom is in there but if you can stick through the boring part there's stupendous reward just in having done that and having made something that didn't exist before but if you're expecting that you're going to quit your boring job and go do a creative job and that you're never going to be bored again you're wrong (laughs) (laughs) the dream of i'm going to quit this and then go be A singer or a, you know, whatever, do it, by all means, of course, but recognize. I think Brandon Stanton, the great honie Brandon Stanton, said something like, people often go into the arts because they don't want to go into a field where they have to work very hard, but they don't realize that you have to work even harder. (laughs) Um, And otherwise, nothing will come of it at all.
2: Well, Liz, this has not been boring.
3: Not for me either. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank I really, you. Thanks, I really appreciate
2: Max. you taking the time.
3: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Audible, Squarespace, and Bombas. Get yourself some new socks. Go to Bombas.com slash longform. you get 20% off. Thanks, most of all, of course, to Liz Gilbert, as I'm sure you could tell. Uh, I had a wonderful time talking to her. And after the interview, I realized that that story about swing dancing, the Frankie Manning story, it's nowhere online. So I called Liz, and she was kind enough to uh, give us rights to reprint it in full. It's up on the site. It's in our app. Go check it out. It's a uh, GQ piece from 1998 called Gotta Dance. We'll see you next week.